0: From Proud Mary, Bad Moon Rising, and Born on the Bayou, John Fogarty wrote some of American rock's most iconic songs. In this episode of 92Y Talks, the Credence Clearwater Revival frontman sits down with music critic Alan Light to discuss his new book, Fortunate Son, and his journey from Northern California to rock superstardom in the 60s and 70s. The conversation was recorded in front of a live audience on October six, two 2015 at New York's 92nd Street Y. Good luck. Good luck. Off and running. Hello. Thank you all. Thank you all for coming. John, thank you for coming. I know they've been running you all day long today. Book tour. Book tour. Big day. And
1: I want to thank you all for coming too. Appreciate it very much. <laughs>
0: and congratulations on the book. Uh, today is, today is liftoff, you made it, yeah, <laughs> you made it to here. Um, and so tell me, what? Um, why was it time to write this book? Why was telling this story uh, something that you felt like it was, uh, this was the right time to, to get it out there?
1: Well, um, I think everybody who, uh, Is it entertainment in one way or another, or athletes even? At some point in your life, you say, well, I'm going to write a book. You know, it's such a casual thing, because so many others ahead of you have done that. I said that, you know, 45 years ago. (laughs) But I didn't really say it much after that. Um, And then my wife kind of put me up to it. She kind of suggested it. Oh, you will be meeting my wife, at least (laughs) metaphorically. She really thought that it would be a way of getting my story out there and so many times I have been talking about let's say different events in my life and through a newspaper article or even worse through a little radio interview, you know, you've only got about that much time and I always felt Incomplete when I would leave the studio or you know hang up the phone from an interview And the thought would go through my head, you should write a book about it. So finally, when my wife suggested it, the most recent time, which was about three, four years ago, I said, you know, I do think you're right. I think it's time.
0: I should mention, because I don't know if he did, that uh, they're going to be coming around with cards for questions from you guys, which we'll take for John for uh, later in the the session here. So that's why they'll be wandering in the aisles and think about what you want to ask, and we'll get that up here. Um, so it's one thing to say that I mean it's one thing to say oh I should write a book um, but how <laughs> was probably the but it, how yeah. was well yeah but how was the actual experience of doing it i mean a lot of people say it'd be great and then once they see what it's actually going to involve what you're going to have to pull back up and deal with and talk about um, you know it's not uh, it's not all it's not all fun and games
1: i really didn't know what i was getting myself into um, because, I, you know, I, there's that sense of pride and quality, I guess. I, you know, I wanted to do a good job. I have the utmost respect for you fellas that, uh, and gals that write books all the time. It <laughs> Having said I was going to write a book, I just didn't realize how much, uh, how can I say, how intense it is, I hate to just say that it's hard, it is. Uh, especially if you're gonna do a good job. And if you're gonna do it yourself, you know, instead of just say, hey, write a book about me and I'll sign my name, you know. Um, so as I say, I, I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. It, uh, in the middle, you know, the, the going was a little tough, let's say, it was, it was um, a labor. But as I got near the, you know, coming down the home stretch, <laughs> i was really glad i was feeling very good that that i had you know this book is nonfiction. it's (laughs) you know if i ever do it again i'll only write fiction because i don't have to find out so much stuff you know and make sure that it's absolutely correct um as i was coming down the home stretch i just felt that it it really did say what i wanted it to say and uh, there was enough of me in there you know one thing i just have to say right out about it was um once i had committed to doing a story basically story of my life i kind of thought that's what it would be i'm i'm really serious and naive about this i thought it would have my whole life in there right i mean even a year into it I'm, oh yeah i got to talk about this one and that one and you know oh yeah i just remembered you know and i right but i mean you know i'm 70 years old <laughs> quite a few let's say summers and winters and uh, springs. And so at some point I realized, John, you're such a fool. This thing's (laughs) going to be that big. So you have to uh, kind of start to, you know, edit yourself and compress it down into what you think is telling the story enough and and explaining your existence, I suppose. And also, mostly what I think the book is about is um, the the journey I went on, and happily, the, um, the great joy I found at a certain turn in the road, which certainly involved finding my beautiful wife, Julie. And at that point, uh, everything was worth it.
0: <laughs> well, let's see, I mean, there's one, seemed to be one sort of basic tension for what this project would be, because there's the piece that everybody wants to know about, which are the great credence, years and that great run which is a time that comes with a lot of a lot of pain and a lot of you know mixed and difficult emotions for for you it's clear mm-hmm. um you know how do you sort of make peace with saying all right i'm gonna have to tackle that stuff and i know that's you know that's what people are coming here for but it's not very much fun to do it
1: um well you hate to talk about things that are kind of negative and it's certainly you know, my memories, um, my memories of building the band and then building the career and going you know, upwards toward that basically impossible dream. It, it, <laughs> it really, does, it didn't seem impossible then, but it, when I look at it now, it seems mighty precocious that a 12 year old kid in El Cerrito, you know, kind of vowed to himself, well, I'm gonna be a really great musician and I'm gonna be the number one artist in the whole world. I don't think I actually spoke in those terms. I think I just wanted to be up on top of the mountain uh, because, you know, way back in the day it was Elvis, and a little bit later it was the Beatles. I just, I just wanted to be way up there and be really good. I think that was my general idea. I love music, still do. Um, but the idea that a kid would have a dream like that, and then by golly it comes true yeah actually four guys from El Cerrito set out down the road and become the number one band in the world that's i mean now when i look at it it's like if i'd only known how impossible that was <laughs> maybe
0: it wouldn't have happened and you would have worried know? about it yeah, yeah. well but the, i was going to so the next thing i was going to ask i mean one thing that's really striking at least as you tell the story now is from the as soon as you start playing music you're dead serious about it this was not like oh, I'll have some fun and you'll get me into some parties and I'll meet some girls and you know, there was, you know, where did that focus and that drive from, you know, seemingly from the very, very beginning, where do you think that came from?
1: Um, I'll try to answer that and I'm not (laughs) really sure I can. I'll I'll tell a little story. Um, One of my very earliest memories of, of being alive was, I was around three and a half years old Uh, I was a little kid in a preschool, the El Cerrito Preschool. Um, El Cerrito was just a little town in the Bay Area in those days. And my mom was one of the teachers, and I think I say that loosely. She was one of the moms, you know, watching the kids, basically. And, you know, we uh, had a lot of fun. I met, you know, a lot of other little kids my age, and we played in the sandbox. And I remember building the Empire State Building. I actually said that out of these... (laughs) Kind of wooden blocks you know and it got about that high and i called it the empire State (laughs) building Um, one day we came home from nursery school and my mom uh, presented me with a little kid's record at least that's the way i remember it and she explained well she said i'm going to play the songs for you so and they were brand new to me one side was oh susanna and the other side was camp town races which is that song that goes do da, do da. And she explained, uh, the weird part is, she explained to me that Stephen Foster was the writer. Stephen Foster wrote both of those songs. I just took that in because my mom was telling me. We may have listened to it a couple more times, but obviously I still remember that. Um, I just find it curious now that you would sit a child down, play him a song, that's almost a nursery rhyme, and then talk about the writer. You know, I don't, I don't think most people do that. Now, my mom and dad were musical, but they were not in any stretch professional or did they have lots of lessons or anything like that. They were kind of normal people who loved music. One thing they would do is in the car, uh, and I, got, I would sit between them in the front seat <laughs> those days, and they would sing... Um, Songs and harmonize because at one point, you know, I got used to what they were doing But when I heard a song I knew let's say jingle bells and I knew the melody But one of them was doing something else and so I find, I asked well, what are you what are you doing? What is that and meant this is a kid four years old five years old Maybe at the most and they told me they were harmonizing and so I was fascinated with that idea that you could make it bigger or Prettier or something by harmonizing. So I, of course, paid attention to that. Uh, as you can see, my parents, and certainly my mom, started me down a, a path, with a, even with a certain direction. I think exposing me to Stephen Foster at such an early age, you know, nowadays we call that sort of thing Americana, which I think I'm certainly guilty of. You know, there's a, there's a certain lilt to my songs and, and even, to, you know. It's got the look. Which is who I am, <laughs> I, yeah. Um, you know, I'm not Kanye or somebody <laughs> else. I, you know, I do it my way. And, it, and it's always been there. I mean, I, I didn't think about it. It just was always there. And as I grew older, even though I certainly hooked onto rock and roll because that was a new thing and I sure liked that Elvis guy. Mm-hmm. But I also latched on to people like Pete Seeger, you know, just all on my own that really seemed to have substance and were very American and, of course, were were singing about something and speaking about something. And I really, I was fascinated and absorbed a lot
0: of that. So just taking all of that, taking all those different pieces in.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and it seemed right. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff I rejected, but since I can't remember those, I'm sorry to talk <laughs> those about those fall
0: it. away. Well, that's what that's yeah. that's what it is, and that's and when you're when you're writing about you know the 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 very first sessions with the band and into the first record, you know the first record you eventually got to a couple of hits with the covers with Susie Q and and uh, and with Screaming Jay Hawkins with uh, Put a Spell on You. There you go. But, um, but what you really are writing, what you write about in the book mostly is this. Feels like you're, you know, searching for. There's something you're searching for. There's a sound. There's a thing. Could you know? Was there something that you heard as a target that you were going for, or were you just kind of fumbling around and seeing where it? Because you're talking a lot about guitar sounds and about, you know, putting, assembling things. You know.
1: Well, there's certainly are things I. What I say about them is they just seem right. Now that's obviously that's right. To me, you know, <laughs> to the next guy, he, he's got a different version of what's right, of course. Um, you know, we were my little trio, th- which I named the Blue Velvets, but it's th- we were three of the members that eventually became Creedence Clearwater Revival. Um, we formed that trio in junior high school. And at the age of 14, we actually got to back up a singer named James Powell, Uh, Rhythm & Blues singer, he was about 25 years old. He had written some original songs. They were all with girls' names in the title. And one of them was called Beverly Angel. Anyway, we made a record with James as his backup band. And that record got played on the radio in the Bay Area, on the Rhythm & Blues radio station, as a matter of fact. That's, to me, still, an amazing uh, turn that my young career took. (laughs) And then, you know, I was off the charts again for another 10 years. (laughs) Anyway, um, from the, you know, from the earliest age, I think I was, well, I was thrilled with guitar. As soon as I discovered guitar, um, I certainly was paying attention to everybody else that played guitar. So as quite a young boy, I adopted my own idols. Uh, Chet Atkins was somebody I really admired. But I knew, he, I, I called him, he must be the best guitar player in the world. And so he was far above me. But I would, I latched on to a guy named Dwayne Eddy because I could almost play his songs. They were a lot simpler uh, they, and they were gigantic hits on the radio and they sounded really cool. So I sort of adopted him as my guitar god. I didn't, you know, didn't know what they called that then. But that was, um, that, that, that did a lot of informing to me. Number one, Dwayne's, Dwayne's music or the melodies were very simple. And I would think about that. That instead of being, you know, jazz was so woo <laughs> woo And I knew those guys were really good but they weren't that intriguing to me. It just didn't kind of catch my didn't ear. speak to you. Whereas uh, Duane Eddy's records really did, and the tone of the guitar was so special. But Dwayne also, because they were instrumentals, he named them all in a really colorful manner. Songs like Rebel Rouser and 40 Miles of Bad Road and The Lonely One, you know, they, they all, the titles painted a picture and I began to think about that as I was growing older, that how important a good title was. Um, and that really became part of something I wanted to, uh, what's the word, bring into my realm and kind of concentrate on. Um, and I learned it from a guy who, you know, didn't write any words at all.
0: But just those titles, painted pictures that...
1: Yes. Yeah. And it sure gives you a direction for your song.
0: Which then brings to you know what what seems to be the breakthrough moment in in, in the writing um, when we get to, after the first record um, and we get to uh, a song that kind of changes everything for you moving forward. We have also a, a pretty phenomenal prop that goes with this. So as you do in the uh, in the in the book, can you tell the the writing of Proud Mary story? Okay. <laughs> um
1: well i got drafted in uh, 1966 i believe early and uh, of course vietnam was raging and and uh, everybody my age was certainly worried and concerned about uh, what life was going to be anyhow i eventually because things were um, in turmoil in those years let's say uh, i am, i managed to get into an army reserve unit which meant that uh, I wasn't in the regular army, and most likely was not gonna be sent overseas, and certainly to Vietnam. Uh, but I didn't do my active duty until 1967. I went, in, I went on active duty in January, 67, and got off of active duty, I believe it was July, uh, right? Uh, you know, I landed back home in the Bay Area in San Francisco, right in the middle of the Summer of Love, they call it now. Um, And I had vowed, I had determined to get more serious about my songwriting up until a certain point whenever I sort of had an inspiration. It's kind of like my career in school with homework. It was sort of lackadaisical (laughs) like this. Oh, I feel like writing a song. I better find a piece of paper to, you know, and I'd go rummage all over the house because it wasn't like we had a, you know, a library and a pen set and all that sort of thing. But eventually I'd find a piece of paper and something to write with, it might be a crayon or a, an old chewed up pencil or whatever, um, and I'd get that done. But anyway, getting out of the army and all the discipline for off active duty and all the discipline that goes with it, I thought that you know maybe I should get more organized and be more serious. If, you know, I was older, maybe you're trying to actually earn a living at this and you need to be professional. So I went down to a local store and uh, got myself a little binder, (laughs) and uh, I believe it costs about a dollar, something like that, and of course the little ream of paper that goes inside. And I proudly came home, and on the title page, you might say, I wrote the words, song titles, Uh, with the idea that this little golden book, which was still empty, was now going to be my... My key to professionalism and perhaps even a good song and the idea was obviously I was going to Make write down song titles as they occurred to me. And so I was all ready. I had a pen or a pencil and My little empty book and so a period of time passed it might have been a day or two or a week I really can't remember but at some point, you know soon after getting this the words Proud Mary occurred to me all by themselves. It wasn't like a group of, you know, five titles or something. It was just those words, Proud Mary. Hmm. So I dutifully went to my book (laughs) with my pen. And on the very first line, (laughs) the first entry of this book is the words Proud Mary. And uh, I didn't know what it meant or what to do with it. Eventually, as you saw, I began to write other things on that page and then more and more pages. Um, Well, that was probably in the fall of 67. Then we go ahead and have things happen, like I changed the name of our band to Creedence Clearwater Revival. Uh, We record a tape, which is the song Susie Q, and it starts to get played on an underground station in tape only there's only one copy but eventually that sort of convinces people that maybe they can put out a record of that uh, and that leads to an album and about the time that album came out right as it was you know I would already written the songs and it was all recorded I began to worry because now Susie Q was a single on the radio and I began to worry about the future what's gonna happen (laughs) after that Um, and so, somewhere in that period of time, fate stepped in again. Um, like a lot of young people, I was pretty unhappy with being in the military, and it certainly it was a direct conflict, uh, certainly appearance wise, with my dreams of being a crazy rock and roll rock star, you know. so uh, I had than at least pursuing the idea of getting out of the reserves uh, sooner, let's say, than later. <laughs> um, and one day in, I believe, July of 68, uh, there was this thing sitting on the steps to my little apartment building, and I actually stepped over it for a few days because it had some kind of an official seal on it. It was in you know, like a manila envelope one day, since it was still there, and I kept stepping over it, I looked down and it had my name on it. Well, lo and behold, it was my honorable discharge from the Army. <laughs> now, that made me really, 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 really happy. And if I can <laughs> put another really in there. <laughs> just keep me. Um, So, the first thing I did was, I, there was a little patch of grass right there, and I was 23, I think. And I went and turned <laughs> a cartwheel. <laughs> because I knew that someday I'd get to tell this story, and I wanted that cartwheel in there. <laughs> um, I really did Good, already that. thinking, already looking down the field. I guess so, because I was a pretty happy guy. Um, I mean, you know, if anybody who had a low number during those days in the uh, draft lottery, you will know what, my relief. Anyhow, um, I went right in the, the apartment, you know, picked up my Rickenbacker guitar, which, even though it's electric, It kind of, it's semi-hollow, so it's loud enough, even though it's not plugged in. There's some acoustic noise coming out of it. And uh, I started fumbling with some chords I'd thought of, you know, in recent days. And it began to get a melody, and of course the first line of this thing, suddenly, I was so happy. I just got my discharge. (laughs) Left a good job in the city. Well, that was me. That's what I was (laughs) talking about. And that idea... Went into I, I went to a place that was really special to me. It was it was almost cherished. Um, I'd never thought about writing a song about this before because it was too special. It was kind of up on a pedestal, you know, for people like Mark Twain to write about, or Hoagy Carmichael, or even Johnny Mercer, perhaps. Uh, but I found myself thinking about the Mississippi River. Because I'd always been fascinated, and you know, a lot of American stories uh, that I've written, or, excuse me, that I've read, uh, concern the Mississippi. It just seemed kind of like a bedrock thing in a, in our culture. And lo and behold, the next thing you know, I'm, I seem to be telling a story about a boat, and I'm fumbling around. I you know, I think I had already gotten to the chorus of the rolling, rolling on the you know, and I'm like, wow, that's really pretty cool. <laughs> what is this song about so i go you know my little book is there there wasn't much furniture in my little apartment i open up the book and it's right there it says proud mary and i go wow that's the name of a boat that's the name of my boat it's the proud mary okay and so you know then i was off um it took about an hour i don't think i had every single word but what i will tell you is (laughs) <laughs> I finished that song and I knew I felt I felt in a way I had never felt before I, I, I clearly this was a wonderful and great song I mean I you know I'm usually a pretty humble guy but the fact that there was so much color to it so much life to it and it was about a, a thing and it had, and it felt American you know it, it felt really big to me and therefore it felt really good and kind of strange, I was literally shaking, I will say, uh, you know, with excitement probably, trembling maybe is a good word, because I'd, I felt I had written what we then would call a standard, nowadays you'd call it a classic, I suppose, and I just knew it. No one else had heard my little song, it was just me by myself and my guitar, and I absolutely knew into my bones, wow, this is really good. You know, the way I had dreamed of people like Irving Berlin or Lennon and McCartney or uh, Lieber and Stoller, who were the coasters and Yakety Yak, all those great songs. I, you know, I just, I thought, I, I felt for sure this is it. And um, I will say, of course, I'm sorry I talked a long <laughs> time about that little story. But I sure, when I look back now, there's just so many little things that seem like I was guided. You know it it's just wow the, the the discharge there being on the ground going you know instead of sitting on the couch i went to the store and got a book and then wrote that title in there and didn't even know what it was somehow got myself so happy <laughs> that i felt like writing a song about and daring to write a song about something that was probably a bit untouchable to my meager means but at that moment <laughs> it wasn't untouchable anymore.
0: I think it, it, it all, they all aligned. Yep. The stars all came together. It all worked. Yep. So I've got to ask, so the, then the, that next Credence album, Bayou Country, opens with probably my household's favorite Credence Clearwater revival song, which is Born on the Bayou. That amazing sound at the beginning and then that rolling guitar figure and then really one of the great vocals ever in rock and roll that you put on that, I mean, unbelievable song. But you weren't born on the bayou, you weren't born anywhere near the bayou. <laughs> That's true. So where did this fascination with that part of the world, that sound, that accent, those images, all of that, where did that come from? And it stayed, you know, it wasn't just there for a moment in that, you know, on, on that song or that album. It that, stays with the rest of your work. What's, what's behind that?
1: Well, you, <laughs> you included the word fascination when you made the question there, because for a long time, people would ask me, and I really didn't know. Um, I still, I gotta say, I don't know, <laughs> you know? I was, I was though, fascinated through, uh, because of records, uh, the early days of rock and roll, of course, you know, the first year of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, I had been asking myself the question you asked uh, for a lot of years. And at the first class, the first ceremony for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I looked around the room. They had posters up on the, the wall in uh, the big ballroom. And I knew everybody except Sam Cook. I knew where everybody was from, and I wasn't sure about Sam Cooke, and I went home and researched that. Well, all ten of that first class of rock and roll were from the South. And it's almost like, I rest my case, you know? (laughs) Uh, Meaning, I was fascinated through that wonderful music, and also uh, some guys who seemed to be generally from the South, like Lead Belly, uh, certainly Howlin' Wolf that I was very aware of in those days, Um, and also you know so the music really drew me in Um, but also a lot of things uh, that are in American culture kind of stood out to me and I was fascinated with them meaning uh, certain movies we have in our culture and certain books and even certain authors like Tennessee Williams you know uh, Mark Twain of course it's just it's a part of our culture I know we have a lot of other things going on in our culture, but for some reason, I gravitated toward that and thought it was the coolest thing, I really did. And I just, I thought everybody felt that way. It was as simple as that, I thought everyone that's just thought, you know, I mean, I'd hear a curious phrase somebody would say like, grinning like a mule eating briar. And I'd go, wow, that's funny. <laughs> and I, you know, it, I, I would remember that because it was odd to me, it was strange. <laughs>
0: So, starting with Bayou Country, you you go through one of the, you know, I won't say unprecedented, but there's very little to compete with the year of 1969 for Credence, that you put out three, you know, top to bottom classic albums Bayou Country, Green River, Willie and the Poor Boys, all in the same year. I know you've been touring with that as a concept, as a 1969 idea. All these things. What does it feel? I mean, when you're on a run like that, when you're writing, and everything's everything's going, what does it feel like? I mean, what is it exciting? Is it scary? Uh, I mean, there's really there's only a couple of other bands ever that you could point to and say had, you know, a a, a chapter um, that that stands next to that.
1: You know, I'm glad you asked the question that way. There's a few ways, but whenever you... you Go look at a picture of me in those days. Whenever you see a person with that look in his eye, get out of his way. (laughs) You know? um, And if I saw me, I'd get out of my way too. I mean, yes, you are correct. It was... um, Well, let me back up a little bit. I I do want to tell the story of why I was motivated to do that because, and you know, young people being the way they are, precocious and all, I was. I was. What's the word? Inspired to do that, but lo and behold, then I went and did it. You know, I mean, now I mean, (laughs) you know, honey, would you you put the dog out? You know, that kind of thing. Um, Susie Q had become a hit. And I could see the future or I could see one version of the future and that was wow That's a classic song by a one-hit wonder And it's a cover song kind of a novelty song, you know that sort of thing. And I, And I'd you know been studying rock and roll all my life and I, I don't want to be a one-hit wonder <laughs> You know, It just it was a scary thought you have I gone through all of this and prepared my whole life for Suzy Q and that's then it. gone, you know so I basically told myself, John, it's now or never. Everything that you've gone through, all the stuff you've told yourself about being a songwriter, being a singer, you know, playing guitar, what it's, you've got to make it all come together now or else you're going to be a one hit wonder. And my version of that that I would tell the band was, we've had a hit, the spotlight is on us. If we do something good, they'll keep the spotlight on us. If we do something bad and the spotlight's on us, everybody's gonna know about it, and that's that. <clears throat> on, to on to the, the next. next. Right. So I was—you—you you might say I was hugely motivated. <laughs> um, and after that, it, it was just a matter of doing the work. I mean, I—I really—I put on a work ethic like nobody saw. Um, I didn't think there was. Well, I took stock of my situation. Here we were, a group of four guys. Yeah pretty good band, but not the greatest. We weren't scaring anybody as musicians. Uh, We had no manager. We had no publicist. We didn't have an agent. I don't know all the other things we didn't have, but we were also on the tiniest record label in the whole world, and they were a jazz label to boot, so they really didn't even know anything about rock and roll or have any history, and so I, I looked at that, with this humongous motivation I had, and I said, well, I see all the stuff we don't have, I guess I'm just gonna have to do it with music. And so, basically, it became my fault, <laughs> you know? I, I had to take responsibility and do the work. I, I'm not sure if, when I told myself that phrase, if I actually knew all the stuff yet, I, but I, kicked myself in the rear and said, you've got to do it right now, not later. Whatever, you know, whatever you've been talking about, you've got to go do it right now. And I worked like a whirling dervish to, uh, which meant staying up late at night to write, uh, rehearsing with the band, you know, like a demon, trying to, you know, which really only was about three hours a day from 12 till 2.30 or 3 o'clock, mm-hmm. but it was every day. Uh, we took weekends off, but it was a regular thing. We were trying to get better. And, of course, I was the the Newt rockney, the, the coach, trying to, you know, talk it up and keep everybody inspired.
0: Did you think, it's, I mean, when you're in that, are you even, are you looking side to side? I mean, are you thinking about, you know, competition? Are you looking at what the Stones are doing? Are you looking at what the band is doing? Are you looking at it? or are you just full steam ahead, don't, don't move your eyes off the target.
1: Well, it's a funny thing, uh, Alan. It, it, I, I never looked at it as competition. Um, when the Stones would make a record during that era or the Beatles, you know, I, I actually began to feel that we were, uh, that there was some kind of kinship. That, so, you know, I was certainly aware of them and I began to feel that they're probably aware of us too, you know. Um, that felt good to me. I mean, you know, I loved right around in that time was honky tonk women. I loved that record and Brown Sugar. You know, it was great. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> uh, Beatles were you know on a tear uh, right then, j- just at that moment before they broke up. Um, so I, I never saw that as competition at all. I was enjoying it as a, because I love rock and roll and love music. It was I was I was enjoying it as being in the party in the room where all this was going on
0: and so i don't want to spend too much time and there's a lot of the book that's dedicated to then a lot of the the problems and the tensions that start to come in around this time Mm -hmm. you talk about you're the coach you know running the show Um, it's easy enough to understand being ripped off by a record company i mean that i think we're all prepared to accept you know we you, mean, you mean, yours it's is the a, same as being killed by a right. serial killer. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah, of right. course, stuff happens, yeah. right? That's yeah. that's what that's what they say, right? right. Um, but it is it's definitely different to read your story and read about the split between you know what happens between you and the rest of the guys in the band, and the extent to which they line up on the record company side and then kind of stay there. Um, you know, tell me what what it is, um, and obviously this is a six hours many days long discussion to go through all of that but what's at the what's at the root of when things split apart like that
1: Um, and I'm hoping that you'll all read the book so I I really don't want to beat that pale horse to death Um, I think the first time that I got the sense that there was something not quite right uh, was pretty early on Um, of course Proud Mary and that album went up the charts and then uh, I got real busy because I was worried about I didn't feel that there was another single on that first on Bayou Country which actually our second album Um, and so because I had put Born on the Bayou on the other side of the single (laughs) Proud Mary um, remember I said to myself well you're just gonna have to do it with music and I felt I really felt that that meant because the people I the great ones that I admired like the Beatles and Elvis, especially in his heyday, had done exactly that. There were, there were two good songs on those singles. They had, you know Both sides were A-sides. The Beatles maintained that pretty much through their career. Um, and so I wanted to do that. I didn't wanna be holding things back, although every guy at a record company, and if we'd had a manager and all those other things, I, they are all telling you, no, no, stretch it that's out. Another stretch it, that's another know. hit, that's another hit. So it meant there was no other song worthy of being a single on that album. I had to get busy and write a new single because I wanted to stay fresh on the radio with new material, of course. I ended up writing uh, Bad Moon Rising and Lodi. And of course, those are the two songs that follow Proud Mary, which was this huge moment in my life. So I think for several months, I felt that Bad Moon Rising and Lodi were two B-sides (laughs) <laughs> it was my own judgment. Because, you know what could
0: <laughs> mighty fine B-side you yeah. got there. Yeah. Uh,
1: what could compare with "Proud Mary"? But there we were. Now we had a single going, um, and we started to work on songs for what would be an entire album. And I was into the idea of "Green River" by this point, and uh, "Green River" was very much about my own childhood and uh, a place I used to go as a kid with my parents, and also. Um, musically kind of reflective of the Sun Records sound, if you guys know what that is. Uh, Something I was very fond of, certainly the very rootsy feel of early rock and roll, uh, something that I still honor. So all of that was kind of coming together and I I had managed to write some good songs in that territory. Um, So I already had the band working on a few of those songs. Uh, certainly the the song Green River. And I know, oh, two, three days into those rehearsals, by now we were rehearsing in a little shed behind Doug Clifford's house because (laughs) the police had showed up at uh, various other places we were rehearsing in El Cerrito uh, because we were too loud. And uh, they eventually showed up at Doug's house too, but for now we were still there. Uh, and we had finished rehearsing the song Green River and a couple others for that day. We had come out to the front, and my brother Tom, I mean, out of, you know, it was, we had a nice practice. I, I thought we were all talking about future things, and you know, our band, our career, was looking brighter and brighter. And kind of out of, from nowhere, Tom kind of hisses out the words, we are getting quite a repertoire. And the way he said it was very hard you know, and, you know, and it it was just, how do you, how do you say it? When the, the brother that you grew up with, the brother that you love, suddenly there's this, you know, kind of boy howdy moment, you know, you you kind of, whoa, and so, you know, I drove home in my car, went home by myself, and what was that all about? I I didn't, I didn't understand it, it was just really, it stood out, because it was there all by itself, of course, uh, how can I say, that was a, as symptom of things that were starting to show up later but that was like the first moment of tension that I felt I didn't know what it meant and it it took a long while before I understood that there was tension um, and that people were unhappy you know (laughs) throughout that two-year period two and well, it's two years um, what I did was just went home and worked harder it's okay, well uh, I'll, I'll write another song and then everything will be fine, <laughs> everyone will see that this is what we should be doing. Um, I don't know if you want to prod me here and go off on in some other well, direction. Well it's an
0: interesting, I mean you know most of the bands there's a, you know, there was, there's John and Paul or there's Mick and Keith or there's Plant and Page. you know bands that are built around these these pairs and these guys sort of playing and off Davies each other. And Davies and Davies. And Davies and Davies <laughs> <laughs> when not, you know, swinging at each other. Um, you know, you were in a—it's a different position when it's a band, but it's, you know, really being generated by this one guy. Right. Um, you know, there's nobody for you to—there's kind of nobody for you to lean on or blow any of that steam off or whatever it is. Um, you know, did you? I guess you know, why was it so? Was it impor, why was it why was the band structure important? Did you think about going to be John Fogarty then? And is there anything, um, you know, is there anything that you feel like you could have handled differently as that was starting to surface?
1: Um, Those are really both really valid questions, really good questions. Um, From the time that, uh, certainly from the time around 1966 when uh, I had landed us a gig at the Monkey Inn in Berkeley. You know, I'd played there for a little while with some other guys. And then for, they were students at UC Berkeley, and they were a few years older than me. I think they were graduating. Was what what happened? They were architecture students. Really great guys and good musicians. And you know we had fun. But I'm I'm not sure I ever thought of that as going down the road and, and staying together. Um, so I went back and got uh, a you know a nightly or a weekly gig there at on, uh, one night a week. I think Thursday for. My band, although I really kind of didn't have one yet. Um, and so the next week I showed up with Tom and Doug and Stu. Um, I think Stu at this point was playing piano still. And Tom could barely play guitar, <laughs> so he played tambourine most of the time. And Doug, of course, played drums and I played guitar. And I, and, and I, bring, I bring this up because to me this was the formation of the band I was trying to... Uh, bring along into the world. I know, (laughs) I mean, you know, there's some good times. That was really baby steps for a band. Uh, I wanted my brother in the band. It was actually a bit of a hard sell because Doug and Stu had made, you know, we had made a few amateur recordings uh, when we were 14, 15 years old. By now we were about 19, 20. Um, But they had, Doug and Sue had both told me several times, well, Tom can't sing. you know we don't like his singing so now me wanting him actually in our band that had been a trio before uh was a hard sell and tom really couldn't play an instrument but tambourine but i know we got through one night that way and of course the monkey inn was basically a lot of college kids you know you buy a pitcher or three or five and eat peanuts and drink as much beer as you can and and kind of shuffle out the door to your dorm right and that was this night um, one, of the, one of the folks enjoying the music just stood right in front of Tom, you know, kind of wobbly, and he goes, you're useless! <laughs> and we got the biggest kick out of that. There's, there's a sort of fatalistic badge of honor about all that, being able to stand there and be useless, you know, because uh, he was just kind of, you know, Tom could sing, obviously, but mostly playing the tambourine, but it was my idea to get him kind of turned over into cowboy chords at first on the guitar and finally, you know, really playing rhythm guitar and having Stu switch over to bass, which eventually happened. And once, you know, because the, the classic lineup in rock and roll without any extra stuff is two guitars, bass and drums. Um, of course, Elvis's very first uh, hit records with the Scotty and Bill and DJ Fontana, it was that lineup, Elvis on rhythm guitar. Uh, then you get the Crickets, of course, same thing. And if, obviously the Beatles and many, many, many more groups after that. Uh, and I just, we were four people. And, you know, I didn't want a fiddle, a triangle, and a tambourine. <laughs> I wanted that classic nice. lineup. And it, took, it was growing pains to get there. <laughs> But once I had gotten there, after all, these were my friends and my brother, I I thought this was the little brotherhood that we had formed and I, uh, you know, you asked, I'm sorry, my long-winded answer, but that was my identity. That was what I was pouring all my um, energy and imagination into.
0: I wanna ask one more thing and then I'll go to the audience questions. Um, and I just wanna jump ahead a little bit to make sure that we cover it. Sure. Um, so after the you know after after the band breaks up and you're sort of you know you write some great some I and you write almost Saturday Night you write some great songs on some of the early solo work Thanks but you're about but that. you're struggling for I love that song but you're it seems like again you're sort of struggling for a sound Absolutely. and doing a lot that recording a lot yourself what you know we'll jump to what is it that sort of clicks back into focus for Centerfield um, what is it that you know when when it seems like you you're able to reconnect and, and, and harness it again.
1: Well, uh, of course there's a lot of history and I, I won't go into all that because hopefully you're reading <laughs> it the book but you've probably have gotten wind of the fact that I went missing for a long time <laughs> in my career and what I refer to as a long dark period uh, which it certainly was. And because of, basically because of the uh, selfishness of the record company owner and realizing that I probably owed him records for the rest of my life, and I, <laughs> I couldn't do that. I wasn't gonna give him those records after all the other things that had happened. And so to try and make this a simple answer, I determined to become a one-man band. Um, it's, it's a really odd thing to try and understand, but I believe I believe it was a form of self-protection. You know, a way of kind of stalling the inevitable, hoping that I would find a solution. Because I realized, at least to my standards, to play all the instruments was probably going to take a long (laughs) time before it sounded any good. And it did. Um, And so as I got better and better at that, still seeking a solution to the uh, just enormous contract that I was under to fantasy, um, a few things cleared the way and then some things actually got worse while they looked like they were better. A lot like real life, you know? <laughs> um, but in that little magical window, uh, I got good enough. Lo and behold, around the beginning of 1984, after you know, playing those drums every day for 10 years, <laughs> and uh, bass and the other instruments that you know, weren't my main instrument, let's say, which is guitar, it all kind of came together and my little one-man band was now good enough to make a record, at which, at which point I then seriously started writing songs for that little band. and Those are the songs that ended up on Centerfield, the album.
0: This was more or less gonna be my next question, so we'll give the audience credit for it and I'll read it this way. Um, And the setup, for many years you didn't play, wouldn't play any of the Creedence songs when you started playing out again. Um, The question here was, what was the defining moment that made you decide to start singing the CCR songs again? Um, Well, I have to
1: explain to you that in in the midst of feeling really terrible uh, you know in what I call my dark period I had certainly uh, developed a drinking problem and I mean it was a problem um, and certainly was in the depths of depression so I, I kind of lived that way for 10 years I suppose um, you're you're hoping that you can figure out how to get better You're hoping, you know, and of course, friends are saying, you should do, you you should do that. And because I've been in the same position with, you know, unfortunate folks that I know. And you grab them by the lapels and you can talk every kind of sense into them. But until the light goes on in that person, for whatever reason, it just doesn't happen. Well, the light going on for me was one night in Indianapolis, I met the most (laughs) beautiful girl in the world is my dear Julie, and I'm trying to say this as uh, briefly as I can for your your time uh, consideration. But anyway, um, I knew in an instant that I had met the girl of my dreams. Um, I certainly felt instinctively that it was going to get better. Sorry that I'm, uh, you know, I... Sometimes I get through it and I, you know, I look like a rock, but most of the time I look like the mess you're looking at right now, meaning, I get, it's so emotional, it's so wonderful, Um, and she's so wonderful. Um, So that moment turned my entire life. Uh, We started to see each other, you know, I won't go into all the details, but it took a while, you know, she gave me her number and... I lost it and that sort of thing. And all I knew was Julie from South Bend. Oh, <laughs> well, by God, I'm going to find her. <laughs> you know? uh, and we finally did get together and we f- certainly fell in love. And every day got better and better. I mean, I, kn- I, I sensed that it was getting better. And she's a trooper because it didn't happen like that. And she had to live with a guy that had... A lot of baggage and was certainly a piece of work. As a matter of fact, Julie gets to speak in the book, and I think she, it's my favorite part of the book, by <laughs> the way. When I read, oh man, this is really good. You know? um, so I need to tell that story because I began to heal, and that sort of laid the groundwork for other things that were possible and only possible because I had met Julie. If I was still that bitter, drunk, uh, angry man that was hell-bent to destroy himself, I don't, like I say, shaking the lapels, I don't think anything else would have changed. But uh, as we had been together a couple of years, uh, I I began to have this urge to go to Mississippi. This is a cute little story and it's strange. (laughs) Um, And it got stronger and stronger. It started somewhere around 1987 or 88, and I would just kind of push it aside because I didn't even understand it. And finally one day, it was just, it was so strong in me, I've got to take care of this. I went in the other room in the house and said, honey, I've got to go to Mississippi. (laughs) And Julie has this way of looking at me with her blue eyes and they get real big. And it's a a certain precious look, but she knows me and she buys into it. She can tell when I'm, we know each other, I guess, and she can tell when I'm serious. She goes, okay. She says, "Uh, why? And I say, I don't know. (laughs) And she says, when? And I say, now. (laughs) And that's basically what happened. It might have been even the next day. Um, I eventually made probably six trips. I really didn't count, but it's kind of in that territory. And what the first time, at least, as I was off down the road, I had a bunch of books about blues singers and a couple of uh, uh, cassette tapes is what we had in those days. And I told myself, "Oh, well, I'm going to look up the family tree. I just, you know, all this great music I'd heard growing up, certainly the Mississippi Delta. I'm j- I guess that's it. I just want to find out. How it all fits together, and I told myself that was the reason I was going. Well, along the way, I'll, I'll cut to the chase. I found myself on the first trip in the very hot sun in Mississippi, standing at the purported, the the <laughs> fabled gravesite of Robert Johnson. This was 1990, and right at that moment in time, uh, this the record company had. Re- released a box set of all the known recordings of Robert Johnson and uh, there was one picture at that time of Robert Johnson and and there was probably a booklet this was a CD in those days of course and it had gone platinum you know Robert Johnson was a big star and I'm standing there at his grave and I'm, I'm looking at the little church and and I suddenly thought about the songs I just asked myself well I wonder after all this time, I wonder who owns the songs. What would have happened to those? And of course, immediately my mind entered the modern world. It's probably some shyster lawyer with a big cigar in a tall building, you know? I mean, that's the way it usually goes. That picture disgusted me. It just, that made me disgusted. That's the best word I can use. It's a hot sun. I'm saying that or thinking that really. And finally, I think out loud, I just, it doesn't matter robert those are your songs the whole world knows those are your songs and i said that out loud you know there's not a soul around there of course i probably look kind of crazy but the moment that came out of my mouth a light went on in my head you know sticking up for this guy laying in the ground those are your songs robert it doesn't matter about all that other stuff we know those are your songs and the picture in my head was, and I actually said to myself, John, that's your story. It's exactly your story. Those are your songs. People do know, in fact, a couple of famous people had said, John, those are your songs. One of them was Dwayne Eddy and one of them was Chubby Checker, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, even Bob Dylan one night. And so kind of putting that all you know, rolling around in my head, I realized, I, s- I said to myself, you know, You got to start playing those songs before you're laying here in the ground like Robert Johnson. (laughs) And even though I had vowed to never play those songs again, this somehow seemed like the tunnel, you know, the ray of light out of that Gordian knot I had tied myself Mm -hmm. in. And it all seemed okay.
0: (laughs) 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 I do. Uh, <laughs> I do love. I love you too. Thank you. And I do love that moment in the book when you're there at Robert Johnson's grave, and the whole thing just comes clear. You're like, I can't worry about yes, has benefit, like what this is doing, who it's whatever it is. I gotta put these songs back out there. That's a well, he's powerful, a, powerful a lot mojo, of stuff right? there. Yeah, yeah, you know. and
1: it worked for me, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, and that is the truth. It's hard to get human beings. You know, we all have stuff, but. If you find a path to clarity, it sure works.
0: So last thing I'll I'll ask from here is uh, a a, truly a classic. Thank you, Vin from Staten Island for saying, what comes first, the music or the lyrics?
1: Oh, um, (laughs) the way it normally works, I would say 90% of the time, really, is I'll have a guitar in my hands, because I love to play guitar, and I'm a dedicated guitar guy, meaning I'm working on stuff all the time trying to get better, you know, I promised myself when I was a little kid, you're going to grow up and you're going to be great, like Chet Atkins, and then somewhere around the time I was 48, I realized that it hadn't happened, and that scared me, so, you know, I decided to get really busy, but it means I have a guitar in my hands every day, and a lot of times I'll be noodling and
0: fiddling around just to say as you said you were up 4 30 this morning absolutely playing a guitar
1: yes <laughs> because I knew after about six o'clock they were going to have me for the day and I needed to get my guitar in before I you know was off doing the book tour as they say um, but when I have a guitar in my hands a lot of times I'll, I'll noodle I'll kind of accidentally fall into something that's kind of cool I describe a couple of those even in the book and what happens is then is I'll, I'll, I'll go, wow, that's a cool lick, I like that. And I always fake myself out, because it happens, it's happened so many times I can't even count, but it's, I'm kind of faking myself out because then I go, wow, that would be a cool song, let's see. And I start playing that little lick that I've just stumbled onto and head off into a real song. And usually at that moment, it has something to do with the lick, right? And so I'll start doing melody. And so I, I, I tend to go from the lick to the melody because I need something that, how can I say it, seems solid enough that it would be a real song. But the intriguing, and then later, I kind of fill in the lyrics, especially if while I'm working on the melody, I'll, I'll sing sort of nonsense vowels, sounds. There's no real words there, but it's a way of making you know, some kind of sound with my mouth to play at the melody that I'm thinking of. And some, every once in a while, a little consonant, a little vowel will come out that almost sounds like a word. And it'll get me going in a direction. You know, If I say something like, tombstone, I go, tombstone? <laughs> oh, what's that? That sounds fun, you know? <laughs> um, but the, the funny thing about that is, you could certainly write a song, you know, words and melody, without any guitar lick. The, the lick is really a separate thing. Of course, in my, my records, they seem to be pretty married together, but you don't really need the lick. You could just write the words and melody, but somehow I give myself permission after I've written the lick, You know, after I've come
0: up with that, it seems to be a and key that opens a door. So others talk about the sort of singing the nonsense sounds that steer you towards what words might be in there. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I do that all the time. Um, wow, um, trying to think of one. I know the song uh, Train of Fools came about that way. Uh, it's a later song, you may or may not know that. It was on my most recent album, um, wrote a song for everyone. And it's a song I really like. Be- basically, the storyline is a group of people who are taking their last ride. <laughs> uh, and I have a lot of fun with uh, the different kind of stereotypical human pe- you know, lives that you can name somebody a traveler or a gypsy or a thief or, and um, kind of develop that. But the first part about that was some nonsense words that turned into the phrase train of fools. And when I, oh, that, that thought, you know, that thought, that concept of a train with a bunch of, you know, the fools would be people like us, of course, or at least that's the way my mind works. (laughs) Um, And you're all invited. (laughs) Uh, It just seemed like, wow, you could talk about that. It seemed almost uh, biblical that you could then describe, you know, could tell a story with all those passengers on that mystical train. Of course, then some good sense had to come into play because I, I hate to admit it, but in the five minutes after I came up with that title, I started up down the road on a kind of a rockabilly song. It was fast, sort of like an Elvis thing, going bum, 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 bum. oh, train of fools, a train of fools. You know, and I mean, I could almost see that. Well, thank you very much. You know? and you know that was the first place I went, and um, I realized that that was so dreadful. Uh, <laughs> because train of fools was a pretty cool idea and this was going to be shtick. I mean it was you know I mean even I was laughing after a while I said well the reason I did it I have to tell you it was one of those weekends where it was Saturday and I had to be starting in the studio on Monday it was one of those times that I was really up against it and so I was kind of in a hurry but I had the good sense to um, take my own advice which I've been saying for years when you hurry you have to do it over.
0: Good. Let me make sure the 12 year old hears that, that's all. Uh, um, so uh, John, speaking of doing cool stuff with guitars, uh, I understand we got a guitar back here. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> wanna, wanna play a song for these folks? <laughs> Absolutely, sure. <laughs> wow, thank you. <laughs>
1: I'll hold this and you'll hold that. <laughs>
0: Secret hidden monitor
1: there. Mm -hmm. Thank you, sir. Wow, that was smooth. <laughs> that, was, that was an easy switch. I was mostly worried about tuning, you know. But I'm not the guy to uh, willingly join the technological world, but these little tuners are pretty cool. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? <laughs> yeah. Um. Wow. I guess I could go in a lot of directions as uh, she Let me tell you about that proud Mary a little bit. That's an interesting little thing. Um, the, the, the rip, the guitar chords had actually come about uh, thinking about Beethoven's fifth. It was something my mom <laughs> measured, m- mentioned quite a few times throughout my life and her life. Oh, and I will tell you that uh, she discovered that I loved music while she was still pregnant with me. She went to a Beethoven concert, and I'm not sure which song it was, but at some point I started kicking up a storm. I was having a great time. Uh, So anyway, I knew about those chords, you know, and I I always had the rhythm wrong. I usually did it just like that because I never heard the rest of the song. So I...
2: Kind
1: of. Well, whatever. I had a ch- I think the real one. Would have been... But that kind of didn't make sense. So <laughs> I ended up going.
2: Cleaned a lot of plates in Memphis Pumped a lot of pain out in New Orleans But I never saw the good side of a city Till I hit a ride on a Well, if you come down to the river You bet you're gonna find some people who live You don't have to worry, cause you have no money People on the river, happy to give Big wheel and keep on turning, Prime love, keep on boinin' Rolling, rolling, rolling on the river
1: now you know the uh, story of how that song was born and how excited I was. Uh, so you could probably listen to some of those words. You know, you realize I had never been to the Mississippi or Memphis uh, at the time I wrote the song. It was all from mm, things, you know, cultural input, I suppose, and maybe a little bit of wishful thinking, I think, too. Um, well, there's another song that I, uh, this song started out life, it was actually um, written about the band Creedence Clearwater breaking up. Um, <laughs> not many people get to write their own epitaph, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I could sense it and see it, and it was happening right all around me, so I wrote a song about it. Um, but I do want to say that uh, for a long time the song, as you know, was, and many others that I had written, were untouchable to me. But I have found joy in my life here at this this point in uh, life and having my beautiful wife, Julie, uh, with me hand in hand through this little experiment we call our career, our project. Um, And we've raised a family and my youngest daughter is Kelsey who's here tonight actually. She just turned 14 yesterday. So our family has had two birthdays right in a row here. Nice week. Today being mine, of <laughs> course. Um, I began to sense several years ago as I was playing this song, uh, you know, for audiences. Uh, Kelsey is a rainbow in my life. It's it's a you know I've been blessed. I've been given the keys to the kingdom as far as I'm concerned. I found the biggest gold nugget there ever was and she's right there and uh, you know I'm smart enough to actually realize it while I'm still alive and I I, you know I understand that that's um, a big step for a lot of a lot of us and so I began to kind of dedicate this song to Kelsey because she's a rainbow in my life and this song has a rainbow in it
2: told me long ago As a calm me for the storm I know And it's been coming for some time When it's over, so they say It'll rain a sunny day I know Shining down like water you ever seen the rain? I want to know. Well, have you ever seen the rain? I'm in down a sunny day. Yesterday and days before sun is cold and And slow.
0: We can, so we can call it alright everybody thank you so much thank you 92nd Street Why? remember next door John will be signing buy the book read the book love the book thank you all for coming out one more time thank you John Fogarty thank
2: you all for coming.
0: thanks for listening 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.